Well, we were about to sit down to a quiet dinner of some, just some flatbread and some vegetables from the garden like our Israelite ancestors had been doing for hundreds of years on nights just like this when suddenly there was voices outside and a loud banging on the door and I opened it and I saw my neighbor. His face was illuminated by the lamp that he was holding and he said, come on, come quickly, there's something happening down at the synagogue. And behind him up on the hill I could see the great city of Babylon and living in the shadow of that city was just this constant reminder of how far from home we really were. Jerusalem, home, this, this city that the Babylonian armies had come and ransacked and leveled before they dragged us here in chains 150 years ago. And my neighbor took me out of my thoughts and he said, well, are you coming? I was like, all right. So I grabbed my cloak and we ran together to the center of the village uh, where the synagogue was and there was this like nervous kind of excitement that was buzzing around. You could just feel it. And as we got close to the synagogue, we saw crowds of people pressing in, uh, kind of pooling around the doors and, and the windows. The synagogue, it was a small building really, just a clay and, and wooden house that had been re, like renovated and it was a far cry from the incredible, beautiful uh, temple of Solomon that our forefathers worshiped at in Jerusalem, but here in Babylon, it's all we could cobble together. And so we got to the door and we pressed through the crowds and we got inside and sat down and my neighbor tapped me on the shoulder and said, that guy up there, that young man with the scroll, he's one of the prophets from the school of Isaiah. And one of our village elders stood up and he raised his hand and we all fell silent. And when he opened his mouth, I was shocked at the emotion in his voice. He said, this young man has good news for us. He's one of the prophets of the school of Isaiah and he's here to tell us that the exile is over. And the elder closed his eyes and this deep tearful smile spread across his face and said, we're finally going home. And then he nodded at the young man who stepped up and unrolled his scroll. And in a strong voice, he read, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. This moment was a moment of incredible hope for the Jewish people who were living in exile. It was a message uh, that smashed through decades, centuries of discouragement and hopelessness. This was the moment where God sent a message of hope to prepare his people to come home after being in exile for four generations. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm on the teaching team here. So glad you could join us. Uh, we are in this series called uh, Christmas in Isaiah. And what we're doing is we're leading up to the Christmas uh, holiday by looking at how Isaiah the prophet sets us up to experience the incarnation of Jesus. And if you were with us last week, you heard that in Isaiah one, God was warning his people that their idol worship and their corruption and injustice was gonna lead them into this thing called exile. Exile, it, it was God's way of letting his people experience the harshness outside of his blessing and protection. 
what is exile? It's not really a category that we use a lot uh, in, in the modern West, in modern America. So let me, let me refer to some categories you might be a little more familiar with as we think about what exile is. So immigrants, you may be familiar with. The immigrants are people who move away from their home to a new home in hope of a better life or better jobs. Refugees flee like famine or war in their home, but once they get to where they're going, they're basically free. But exiles, on the other hand, are forced to leave their home against their will, and once they get to where they're going, they don't want to be there, and they're refused to return home. And it's surprising how much this actually happens around the world even today. So a relatively recent example uh, is in 1944 where Joseph Stalin and the Soviet regime uh, exiled Crimean Tatars from Turkey, modern day Turkey, to Central Asia, thousands of miles away. And there are survivors still uh, that were a part of that who explain what it was like. So what they say is they, they got about 30 minutes notice and then they were herded into boxcars with cattle prods and taken thousands of miles away. On the journey, tens of thousands of people died, mostly the old and children, and, and within the first few years, even more people died. There's one anonymous Crimean woman who said, we starved. Many of us were so weak from hunger that we could not even stay on our feet. Our men were at the front, and so there was no one around to bury the dead. So sometimes bodies lay among us for days. And then some of the children had to dig little graves to bury their unfortunate little ones. Ovid, a Roman poet who lived during the reign of Emperor Augustus, called exile a living death. And you might not know it or feel it or realize it, but Israel's exile story is our exile story. Their experience of being forced out of their homeland because of their rejection of God is the exact experience of all of humanity. Ever since Adam and Eve turned their backs to God in the Garden of Eden, because what they thought what they wanted was autonomy and the experience of life on their own terms, their own definition of what, what right and wrong was. And so God basically gave them what they wanted, life outside of the garden, outside of his blessing protection, and is not at all what they imagined. And we've been exiled, not from our homeland, but from God. And you feel this in your bones. So there's an American theologian, Cornelius Plantinga. He describes how things are supposed to be. He says, they are supposed to include peace that adorns and completes justice. It's supposed to include mutual respect and deliberate uh, widespread attention to the public good. Of course, things are not that way at all. Human wrongdoing or the threat of it mars every adult's workday, every child's school day, and every vacationer's holiday. Author G.K. Chesterton put it a little bit more uh, concisely. He said, men are homesick in their homes. Have you ever felt this homesickness? This, this feeling that things are not at all the way they're supposed to be, this longing for peace and security and love that's supposed to be what home is? Like, have you ever thought, man, children should never be abused. Political leaders should never be corrupt. Generations should never fight against each other. 
Marriages should never fall apart. No one should ever be lonely or ostracized. No one should ever be lied to or betrayed. No one should ever have to commit suicide. No one should ever be dehumanized or enslaved. This is not normal. And I searched the entire internet for someone that could uh, sum this up better than Morpheus from The Matrix, and I couldn't find any, anyone. So you remember this guy? Remember this movie, 1999? Uh, I'm gonna get emails because it's an R movie, don't judge. Um, so Morpheus, here's what he said. He's, he's in this, uh, sitting in this chair talking to Neo, who was, he's about to unplug Neo from The Matrix, which is this computer simulation that, that he thinks is reality, but in fact is not. Here's what he says. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you can feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. You are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison you cannot smell or taste or touch. That's exile. Israel's exile, though, was not the end of the story, and neither is ours. See, God uses exile to prepare us for good news. It's like a joke, a setup that prepares you for a punchline. And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, which is the good news. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it uh, to Isaiah 40 or turn it on or open it up to Isaiah chapter 40. It's in the middle of the Bible. Uh, If you need to use the table of contents, feel free. We're gonna jump in right at verse six. A voice cries out. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but get this, the word of God endures forever. So the first part of the good news, it it begins by reminding us that God's timetable is very different than our timetable. Because the thing about grass is that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It doesn't last very long. I don't know about you, but our lawn is looking pretty brownish right now. And you and I, in the middle of our exile stories, it can feel like forever. But here's what God is saying, that our forever is his moment. Have you ever tried sharing the gospel, the good news with a, an unbeliever, an unchurched person? I recommend you do. And maybe you've, you've heard this. I hear this a lot when I talk to people. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists because how could a God, a good God, allow such terrible suffering to go on and on? Have you ever heard that? It's a legit question. You know, a lot of really godly people have asked it. Job asked it, David asked it. And we see here in verse 27, the Israelites asked like the same form or a similar form of the same question in verse 27. It says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. So in other words, God, aren't you watching Like, do you see what's going on in my life or the life of my child or the life of my friend or a neighbor? Do you see what's happening, you know, around the world? Aren't you paying attention? 
Have you ever asked a question like this? Of course you have. Of course you have. Um, uh, I have friends from Bible college. Uh, I haven't seen them in a while, but we stay in touch through social media as these things often happen. And uh, their names are Carolyn and Doug. And uh, six years ago, their son, who was then nine years old, suddenly became really sick. Like, we have to go to the hospital right now sick. And so they, they did an MRI and it revealed a, a golf ball sized tumor in his brain. So fast forward uh, six years and here's Micah now, he's 15. Guys, he has been through more in his childhood than many of us have been in, through in our entire lives. The, the, the difficulty, the pain, the roller coaster of chemo treatments and surgeries, fearing death, staring death in the face. His exile story is a story that's lasted almost half his life. And whether your exile story includes cancer or a difficult marriage or a child that's grown up and seems to not be interested in you anymore, you need to know that your forever is God's moment. Uh, I brought some props with me. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Of course. Uh, so this is a three-volume set of this, this great work by J.R. Tolkien. Uh, I'm reading it right now with my kids. Uh, it's taken about a year or so. We're like halfway through the first book. It's just dense, right? There are heroes and there are villains. There are all these plot lines, uh, the, you know, comings and goings, and t- so many stories are packed into this. Now, what would happen if I chose one book and tore a page out at random? That page, that one page, would still be a part of the story, but is not the whole story, right? And here's something that this wants to teach us, is that God is the author of history, and your life is just a page in it. Because what happens if we base everything that we believe about God just on our one page? We totally miss the point of the story, right? And that's the first thing that we need to do, is we get ready to receive this good news and return home. We have to understand that God's timeline is different than ours. Okay, so let's just have real talk. Um, So I want to just acknowledge that God stepped in to his exiled people and he gave this message. It's great, you know, but it was 2,500 years ago. It was on the other side of the planet. So what in the world do we do with this? Because he said the sad days are over, right? I don't, I don't know. Am I the only one who's like, I don't think they are. And I can prove it. Like last Sunday, I was getting ready for church, for church, and I was excited and I ran up the stairs and I threw my back out. By the afternoon, I was hobbling around like Yoda. And I was like, really God? Like you know I work for you, right? The sad days are not over. Let's be real, like every, even the most ardent, like thank you Jesus, praise God, I'm standing on your word, believer, here's good news and it has at least a tiny voice inside going, really? What is that? That's cynicism, cynicism. And it's one of the things that we have to deal with if we're gonna respond rightly to God's good news. So what is cynicism? It's, it's the inclination to question whether something that's been proclaimed will actually come to be and is rampant in our culture. 
It's absolutely rampant. Alexander Pope sums up what I think uh, the American mentality is right now. Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. Right? There's this 2016 article in Forbes magazine called In Nobody We Trust. And in this, the author describes how Americans are more cynical now than we've ever been. He said, only 6% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in the news media. Why are the other 94% of us still watching? That's my question. He talks about how trust in religious institutions is down 10% from what it was 20 years ago. And we get it, right? Because our leaders mess up. I mess up. What about the sports world? You guys heard that Russia has been kicked out of the next two Olympics because of doping? Like, it's hard to know who to trust, isn't it? This really hit home for me when I was 12. I got a call from Steven Spielberg. I know what you're thinking, but you have to understand, I just starred in our community's high school play of Oliver. So obviously, he heard about me and he was scouting for talent. And he said, I kid you not, I want you to star in my next movie. And my heart leapt in my throat. I was like, I've arrived, you know? I was like, well, okay, so my mom isn't here. I have to ask her, can I call you back? And I hang up the phone, didn't even take his number. I don't know what I was thinking. So my parents come home and I was like, mom and dad, you guys need to sit down. And I told them everything. And at the same moment, they looked at each other and they were like, it was Larry. <laughs> so yeah. Turns out it was their friend Larry, who's a pastor, by the way. <laughs> and to add insult to injury, I, this like occurred to me after I was an adult. You know what the title of the movie was that I was supposed to star in? The Kid Who Thought He Could. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Pastor Larry. That really helped my self-esteem. So what's the point? Trust is hard because it makes us vulnerable to disappointment. How is God's good news landing with you right now? Like, I don't know, maybe you're thinking like, yeah, Ryan, I, I wanna believe it. it. It really does seem a little too good to be true. You know, maybe one day in heaven, you know, after I kind of walk through the misery of this life, everything's gonna come together and it'll be great, but I just don't see how the good news has any relevance to me right now. And I can imagine that 150 years in exile, after that, that there were Israelites who heard this message and were like, we'll see, we'll see. Like, how do you trust God when you feel abandoned by God? It may help us to read the words of Jesus in Matthew 27, where he was hanging on a cross and he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shows us that far from abandoning his exiles, what God does is he comes in and identifies with them in their pain. Tim Keller, in his book Reason for God, puts it really well. He says, so if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have a deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth. We can know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. So what does this trust look like? Do, do you know it when you see it? So last Friday, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, a bunch of us from the DeForest campus went caroling. 
in the neighborhoods that are kind of sprouting up around our, our new building. And it was really fun and, and it was great and there were, I don't know, 30 of us or so and I don't know who had the brilliant idea of putting the kids in charge of ringing the doorbells but what ha- was happening is that there was this pack of seven-year-olds who were like sprinting ahead, ringing the doorbell and we would have to like catch up and sing our Christmas carols. But they were so excited and running so fast, they kept getting further and further ahead until finally they were like a half a block away ringing a doorbell and we're like sprinting to catch up and we're like "Uh, angels we have heard come to door creek church we know what we're doing it's great (laughs) they were so excited and when jesus needed an example of the kind of trust response that we need to have to god's good news he pointed to a child matthew 8 13 he said Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He pointed to a child and said, become like this. This is what trust looks like. It's not reserved. Midwesterners are reserved, are we not? It's, it's joyful. It's not insecure. It's okay with depending on others. It, it just plops down on God's lap and waits for him. And Jesus says, you will never be able to come home to heaven until you can figure out how to do this. So Micah, this 15 year old who struggled with cancer and his family, had been walking through this exile story and Carolyn, his mom, has walked every step of this exile story with him. And if you're not a parent, just know, like when your child is suffering, you are dying inside. And she recently wrote about a scheduled MRI that was gonna determine whether he still had cancer uh, in Micah's brain. And so just listen to the words that she uses to describe what this is like. She said, we have feelings of nervousness and feelings of hopefulness and great expectation. We continue to seek the Lord and ask him for complete healing in Micah's body and that this tumor and all cancer cells will forever be wiped away. I think that captures it. How do we get to this point where where our response to God is hopefulness and great expectation even though we're still in the middle of our exile stories? I think what Carolyn would tell us if she was here is that it starts and ends with paying attention to who God is and what he's like. So it starts with discovering who God is in his word. It starts with reading and understanding what God claims about himself and putting that to the test in, in the reality of everyday life and saying, is this true? What you're gonna find is God is good and he's powerful, but we forget. Look at uh, some of the descriptions in Isaiah 40. I, I love this stuff. Uh, we're just gonna kind of skip through. Verse 10, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. Verse 13, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? 15, he weighs the islands as though they were dust. Love that. Before him, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing. Verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. 23, he reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. We have to remember that God is good and he is great if we're gonna respond rightly to his good news. And you get that by diving into his word. 
And you also get it, by the way, by doing that together. Because when we're alone, we drift, we forget. That's why we keep talking about get in a group, get in a Bible study. You can't be a Christian alone. It's just not possible. Why? Why is that? Because this is so important, God's goodness and and greatness. It's so important because before God can rescue us, we need to see the absolute bankruptcy of our own attempts at self-rescue. That we can't do it on our own. Look at um, 40 verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Okay, so what, what, what is this telling us? It's telling us that while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, they were, they were making idols, right? So here's uh, a picture of probably the main idol that they were making. This is Enlil, he's a Mesopotamian deity. Uh, He's in charge of like wind and fire and a couple of other things, I forget. And so what they would do is uh, these Israelites were commissioning Babylonian artists to create these statues, these idols. If you were rich, you would have a metal one overlaid with gold, or if you couldn't afford a fancy metal one, you got simply a wooden one, and then they would build like a little shrine and put sweets and incense in front of it, and they believed that, that that deity would reward their prayers and their gifts with success in business, with health, and, and it still happens around much of the world. So uh, I, I've had the privilege of traveling in India and have seen literally thousands of these little shrines. And, there's, and what happens is it's like a spiritual business transaction. And a lot of people encounter the God in the, of the Bible and they say, I don't need that God because I already have a God of my own making. And guys, we've been making gods ever since we were first exiled from the garden. And most of them are not statues. Check out what Tim Keller writes. Oh, no, I don't have it here. I have it here. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, studios, or stadiums, where... Uh, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve higher peace in business, or higher place in business, and gain more wealth and prestige. You get the point. Idolatry is something that we have very much uh, today. And and what it's about, at its very heart, it's about utter self-reliance. Because humans have always preferred gods that they can understand and control over the one that they can't. Self-reliance is not a bad trait in and of itself, but it becomes deadly when we push God aside and say, I've got this. 
So I don't know if you've seen this, this plant, it's called water hemlock, and it's one of the most dangerous and toxic plants that grows in all of North America. Uh, there's a neurotoxin that quickly uh, shuts down the nervous system, but what makes this one particularly dangerous is that out in the wild, it looks almost identical to carrots and parsnips. So all of idolatry is dangerous, but there is a type of idolatry that's more dangerous than any other, particularly to people who are very religious. Why? Because of its disguise. On the outside, it looks like religiosity. It looks like going to church. It looks like maybe voting conservative or voting your liberal values or whatever. It looks like helping old ladies cross the street. It looks like generally just being a good person. It feels great to be religious, and many people uh, with the idol of religiosity feel morally superior to those who have other idols. But underneath all of that, that shiny veneer is this vacuum, and God isn't in the picture at all. It's utter self-reliance. So the thing that always gives religious self-reliance away uh, is, is when they say, you know, I'm open to like learning from God and kind of taking tips from the Bible, but I'm already a good, decent-hearted person. When I hear that, I perk up and I go, really, really? So did you know that up until 1986, all American taxpayers had to do to claim a child as a dependent on their tax form was write down their name? Uh, so that year, in 1986, there were 77 million children listed as dependents. These records are uh, in the IRS. But in 1987, they added a requirement where you not only had to write down the child's name, but also their social security number. Guess what happened? <laughs> that year, seven million children vanished from the United States. <laughs> I don't know, it seems to me that we're generally good and civil people as long as the conditions are right and no one's watching. But deep inside all of us, there is a readiness to do evil that simmers just below the surface. We see it come out sometimes when the conditions are right. It comes out in the form of an angry outburst to a spouse. It, it comes out when the boss walks away and we swear in our own minds comes out when we cut corners on a project or, or round up on our time cards when no one is watching. It, it comes out when a spouse is gone and we're using incognito mode to look at things that we really shouldn't be looking at. And, and one thing, you know, another thing I hear a lot is, you know, I make mistakes, but who doesn't? You know, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I mean, I don't murder, I don't steal, right? Well, that's kind of like being pulled over for speeding and telling the cop, look, I wasn't going as fast as I could have been going, so we're good, right? Like, all you're saying is, I'm not as bad as I could be. Well, let me just throw this out there as a suggestion. Maybe we're not the best judges of our own morality. The British Journal of Social Psychology threw out this really interesting, really revealing study. It was a survey of convicted felons. So these are murderers, rapists, and thieves, convicted felons in the prison system, and what they wanted, they, they asked them, compare your morality to the morality of your other inmates. Here we go. You know how Garrison Keillor's taught us that all children in Lake Wobegon are above average? Apparently this, the same is true for inmates as well. So this is a quote from the study. These inmates rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, 
more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest when comparing themselves to the other inmates. And then they asked the inmates to uh, compare themselves to people outside of prison, so normal people who aren't felons. And here's what they found. Participants, uh, felons, rated themselves as average or better on all of the traits comparing themselves to people outside of prison. What is, what is this? And we all do this. There's an American philosopher, Dallas Willard, who calls this trait the denial of inherent evil. Here's what he writes. We must at some point stop looking for new information or social arrangements or religious experiences that will draw off the evil in the world at large and abolish war and hunger and oppression and so forth while letting us continue to be and live as we have since Adam. He goes on. The monstrous evils that we deplore are in fact the strict causal consequences of the spirit and behavior of normal human beings following generally acceptable patterns of life. The point is this. The way God intends to bring us home is to make us into new people, not to shore up our bad behavior. His plan is to give us new hearts because our hearts are dead without him. He intends to make us into the type of people who love him and trust him and then in doing so reflect his goodness and generosity and self-sacrificing love and justice out to the earth. But when we say, nah, I'm good, what we're doing is we're continuing in the same idolatrous self-reliance that got us into exile in the first place. And at some point, we have to stop and ask, like, how is that working out in our world? How is that working out in your family? Do you have the peace and love and security and safety of home? I think what happens is we tend to work harder and harder trying to do stuff, good stuff, that we believe justifies our own existence, but without God, it's like a man trying to dig himself out of a hole by digging, doing more and more of the same. You and I are in desperate need of something else, something from outside the system to break in and rescue us. What you and I need is a savior. And until we humbly admit that, we're going to remain in exile forever. Anyone doing Advent right now in your home? So we do Advent, and it's, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, we've been doing it since the kids were little, and it's fun. And we kind of open up a devotional, and we get into some scripture reading. And then usually we have this time of like kind of reflection and asking kids, what do you think about this? And so we were talking about what Christmas is, uh, like Jesus being born in a manger. And our son Silas, who is 12, said something that made our jaws drop. And I, I wanted to put it out here for you. He said, in every other religion, we have to get to God. But Christianity is the only religion where God comes to us. I know, right? But before you go ask for his autograph, just know he still farts out loud at the dinner table. He's not like ultra holy or something. He's awesome. Christmas, you guys, is is when God comes to us. And John the Baptist started announcing Jesus' arrival in Mark chapter one, and, and he was quoting, 
He quoted uh, the words from Isaiah that we read a little earlier. Look at what he says in Mark chapter one. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist's voice, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Christmas is when God steps into our exile and announces that it's over. Christmas is when heaven comes to earth. It's when God brings us home by bringing our home to us. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Last week, um, Bree and I, we got to see a performance of Handel's Messiah. It was beautiful. And I, I got like total goosebumps when the tenor soloist at the very beginning of the musical stepped up and started singing these words from Isaiah that we read. I'm not gonna sing them. You're welcome. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for her sins. How does that hit you right now? Do you need comfort? Behold your God. And and notice how God speaks. Tenderly, I can just get this picture of like a mother holding her baby, whispering love to her child. So how do, we, how do we respond to this? How do we prepare for the journey home? And in the entire prophecy in Isaiah 40, there's only one command and it's hidden in verse 31. We have it up here. It says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So they were called to begin this journey home, but the first thing and the only thing they had to do was to hope in the Lord. That's it. So what does that look like? When my wife was 13 years old, she and her family went to Florida and she went to Pensacola and she was swimming in the ocean uh, with her sister and a family friend. And she was out there a little ways, kind of on her own. And suddenly she felt something pull on her legs, pull her underwater and away from the shore. And she came back up and it did it again and again. And again, she was caught in a rip current and she had no idea what to do because we don't have those in our lakes here. And she was taken further and further out and every time the, the force of the water would pull her under, she would go under and slam onto the ground and be under the, underwater for like seconds and come back up, barely take a breath and be pulled under again. And she was panicking, fighting for her life. And after minutes of this, minutes, she was thinking, I- I'm gonna die, this is it. And suddenly, as her sister was screaming helplessly on the beach, she heard a voice in her head that said, just rest. And something incredible happened when she stopped fighting. She floated to the surface, calmly, peacefully, and she was able to slowly tread water and get back to the shore. That's what hoping the Lord looks like. Hoping in the Lord means that we stop resisting the forces that are pulling us under. It's not a passive thing by a long shot. It's not the same as giving up because learning to rest in God 
when you feel like you're drowning is the most counterintuitive thing you can ever imagine, but it's the only thing that will save you. In our exile, we've been cut off from the peace and the security and the love that we were meant to have. And your exile story, I don't know what it is right now. It may be about your job or your loneliness or your marriage or your health. But when we stop obsessing over that and we start hoping in the Lord, we can finally come home. Let's pray. Father, some of us, some of us don't know that we're in exile and you need to wake us up. You need to wake us up to our, the, own, the, the evil that's in our hearts that we justify and gloss over and excuse. You need to show us how dark it really is and show us our need for a savior. Or some of us, we, we know that and what we need is to be held by you and we need comfort, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that even now. And Lord, as we move toward Christmas, would you help us to respond well to your good news, that we would hope only in you. Thank you for bringing us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.